Hi everyone, this is Holly Gilbert Stowell, your host of Security Management Highlights. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. In the March podcast, I featured a portion of my interview with Stephen C. Milwee, CPP, founder, president, and CEO of SecureTest Incorporated and former president of ASIS International. He wrote about sexual harassment and sexual assault investigations in the workplace for the March security management cover story. Since I couldn't fit our entire conversation in for that episode, here's our full talk. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. We really enjoyed your article. It couldn't have come, you know, at a more appropriate time with everything happening around the globe, movements to call out sexual harassment and sexual assault. In the workplace, this is obviously a really important issue. So let's start by explaining the differences between sexual harassment, sexual assault, and just harassment as you do in the article. Well, first, the EEOC has very clear definitions related to harassment. There's generally two types of harassment. They may or may not include some sexual component to the harassment, but they're either a quid pro quo or what is called a hostile work environment. Quid pro quo, oftentimes referred to as tit for tat, is the most rare form of harassment, but generally it involves the offender making some type of demand, usually a sexual demand, as almost a carrot and stick approach. In other words, they may say, if you have sex with me, or words to that effect, then I'll see that you get promoted. Or if you don't, I'm going to see that your career tanks. A hostile work environment, though very common, is oftentimes very difficult for organizations and employers to put their hands around and identify. Some of it is due to lack of training, but often what we see in the investigation is the managers using his or her position in an offensive, hostile language and intimidating fashion so that the worker or a group of workers become intimidated or afraid to do their jobs because they're constantly being badgered and harassed by the superior. So employers have to look for these two types of harassment, but more commonly we find at times that employers don't understand the difference between workplace harassment and criminal behavior. Some of these allegations are criminal in nature, and so they need to understand that the legal definitions in their jurisdictions, for instance, for simple assault to battery to sexual assault, because clearly behaviors can cross the line. For an example, the the unlawful touching of another person in the state of Florida with the intent to do harm is considered battery. You've actually struck or, or injured the person, no matter how minor the injury, and it can range from a misdemeanor to a felony. An assault, for instance, in Florida, in most jurisdictions, is the threat of violence or behavior against someone that's illegal. And so understanding these criminal terms with your legal counsel and then training that throughout the organization can help investigators define when law enforcement may need to be appropriately involved because a crime has occurred. Yes, definitely. Very important for employers and legal departments to navigate that legal landscape in each state depending on, you know, where they are and they do business. And, you know, you mentioned law enforcement and investigations, but let's say that there's a way to prevent these cases from escalating that far. What are some of the signs that managers and employers can look out for to prevent and mitigate this behavior? Well, oftentimes there's very overt telltale signs that something is running afoul, whether it's a hostile work environment or an actual situation where an employee is having a challenging experience with their superior. Some of the most common telltale signs I've seen over the last 39 years of conducting these type of sensitive investigations 
is what I call creating the inappropriate intimate relationship. What happens is oftentimes the manager's looking for victims. They know that if they find a vulnerable victim, they may be less likely, one, to report misbehavior and may also, too, be more likely to engage in inappropriate sexual behavior in and out of the workplace. And so they create these moments of intimacy where they begin to learn about the problems that the workers having in their personal relationships. And so once in this example, a female victim begins to share about problems at home with her boyfriend or her husband or significant other, then this becomes a weapon where she fears, well, if I go and tell HR or security or upper echelons of the organization that I'm being harassed, Who's going to believe me because I've already shared with him uh, that I've had an affair uh, outside my marital relationship? Uh, why would I even be talking about that stuff uh, to my manager? And so by creating these moments of intimacy, the offender, the manager in this example, is almost what you call looking for a hook. He's trying to bait the water to see if the person, like a fish, will take the bait. And when they do, then he uses that information to either engage in, in an appropriate relationship or then use it as a sword to prevent the person from coming forward out of fear. Would that mean that a manager or you know an employer needs to be on the lookout for a lot of closed-door conversations between a manager and, and their subordinate? Or how would you kind of look out for that one in particular? Well, I, I'll give you an example uh, uh, that's been in the news of late, uh, the late Billy Graham, uh, who... Uh, has been called America's Pastor, a tremendous man who's written uh, a lot of books and spoken all over the globe. One of the things that he spoke about in one of his books was how had he prevented allegations of sexual misconduct or other type of, of allegations affecting his ministry. And here's what he wrote, effectively. He would never meet with a female person in his ministry without either his wife present or another member of his pastoral team present in the room. Even Vice President Pence was recently asked questions about this, and he made comments even before uh, Pastor Graham's recent passing that he would not go to dinner with a person of the opposite sex unless his wife or someone else was present. Now, many may say, boy, Steve, that is just beyond the pale. It's too far. I mean, we live in a more open culture where we need to engage in conversations with employees, and I know how I'm conducting myself. Well, that may be true, but that doesn't necessarily prevent the allegation from occurring. By creating what I call stopgaps in my own organization, I won't meet with a subordinate employee unless I have another manager present. One, it makes them feel more comfortable that there's another witness present. And two, that has just been our culture for the last 39 years in business. It helps avoid, one, temptation. We're all human beings, and we can be tempted to do something that is outside our normal character. But at the same time, it prevents allegations or false allegations. And so every organization has to define their own culture, and some may have a much more open, freer culture. But if that's the case, I would certainly suggest leave the door open when you're meeting with someone, unless it's a very private meeting. If it's that level of privacy, then generally you want someone else there to be a witness to it. And let's say that this situation has escalated to investigations. Uh, you, you outline a lot of different things in the article, obviously best practices for that side of things, but kind of a good overview for us if you could provide about conducting an investigation into an accusation. Well, I, I think first for any organization, you have to be committed to commissioning a professional and thorough 
competent investigation by trained professionals. We've seen here recently where many organizations have had what I call a knee-jerk reaction to a complaint. Now, it very well may have been justified. Their reaction may be very appropriate because they had sufficient evidence to act. But more often in the everyday workplace, these investigations are very complicated that require a trained investigator to know how to investigate. For example, are they looking for physical evidence such as emails, letters, other correspondence, telephone call logs, uh, text messaging, and other types of ways that people communicate today and or send inappropriate images or pictures across these various uh, communication sources uh, to one another? Uh, how do you conduct the interview of the accused? Uh, how do you conduct the interview of the person who's making the allegation or complaint? Oftentimes, the complainant is so intimidated initially during the interview, it's almost, a, a, for lack of a better phrase, a hand-holding experience. They first want to be heard, and more importantly, they want to be believed. It doesn't necessarily mean everything they're going to say is telling the truth or telling someone the truth, but it means that at least they're communicating. And you don't want to make the mistake as an investigator of telling the complainant that you believe them at the front end of the investigation. You may very well believe them based upon the nature of their demeanor and what they're telling you, but there's appropriate questions you ask. For instance, who did you contemporaneously report this to? More times than not, if you're greatly offended by someone's misconduct, whether it's in the workplace or at home, you're going to tell somebody. It's just in our nature. The person who never tells someone and comes in months, years later and reports misconduct is very difficult to corroborate. It may, they may be telling the truth, but then again, you have to stop and question. If you were this offended two years ago and you never told anyone, including your husband, boyfriend, significant other, or best friend, then how do we cooperate this? But at the same time, how you then conduct the investigation of the person who's being accused of this, this is a life-altering, career-stopping event. If proved to be true, they're done oftentimes. But also just the allegation can follow them around in their career and future job opportunities or promotions that we need to take these investigations very seriously and not forget that we all deserve due process. We all deserve to find out fact from fiction. Sometimes complainants are not truthful or they're not telling the entire story. At the same time, the accuser oftentimes is minimizing his misconduct because they know the consequences if they admit to it. A trained, skilled investigator who's had experience in these type of specific investigations knows how to look for the signs of deception and, and obfuscation and then turn those around and get admissions against self-interest that may even turn into a full confession. When you get a full confession, as we commonly do here at our company, then there's no doubt in anyone's mind. The worst thing that can happen in almost any investigation is what I call inconclusive. We can't prove that it happened, and we can't disprove it didn't happen. And so it's very imperative upon counsel and investigators to get to the truth so that they can make conclusive recommendations. Here's what happened, and here's the appropriate steps to take. The law, the EOC specifically, doesn't require us as employers to fire the offender, which brings me to a very important point of bringing the victim of, of a legitimate uh, situation into the process to discuss with her or him 
what they believe is the appropriate closure to this investigation. For instance, I would say to to you, Holly, I would say, Holly, uh, I want you to know that we've concluded our investigation. I want to just thank you so much for bringing this to our attention because we've been able to prove what you've told us. Number two, this is a very important step in our investigation. And I'd like to know from your perspective, no pressure on you, what would you like us to do to John? You very well may say, I just want it to stop. That's what most victims of harassment say. They just want it to stop. Number two, you might say, well, if I just don't have to report to him, then I'll be satisfied. If I could report to someone else in the company, I'll be satisfied. Though you as an employer may take more definitive corrective action, such as termination or stronger disciplinary action than what you are recommending in this example, at least you know you've been heard. You are part of the process. That whole process that I just described almost invariably stops litigation claims. We don't need to go to court. You are involved in the remedial steps that's required by the EOC. It doesn't require you to fire the person, but it does require you to take effective remedial steps. It means that it stops, there's no retaliation, and there's some reconciliation of what's going to take place in the aftermath. Obviously, prevention is the best tool that can mitigate harassment in the workplace and hopefully avoid you know, an investigation if you can do that. So what are just some of the other best practices you, know, you conclude the article with that help an employer prevent all this behavior? First of all, every organization needs to, to understand that training is a living and breathing process. It's not a destination you arrive at where you say, okay, I checked the box. I had my new employee orientation on sexual harassment. We never need to discuss it again. In this Me Too process that we find ourselves in today's media blitz uh, of one accusation and allegation and termination or a person being uh, ostracized uh, to, to some place uh, that they never thought they would find themselves, we need to realize that we need to continually train from the top down and the bottom up. We need to specifically train employees to have a voice. They need to have multiple touch points, meaning they can report harassment allegations or misconduct to a whole variety of people within your enterprise, HR, legal counsel, uh, the CEO of the company, your supervisor, your manager, or a hotline that you may have. But there needs to be accountability where people identify themselves as the person who's bringing this to their attention and then be applauded internally, not, not in an open forum, but in private meetings with that individual. You applaud them for having the courage to step forward and do the right thing by speaking up. We all have a voice. We need to exercise that voice. Importantly, then, we need to train our supervisors and managers that to avoid these moments of intimacy, we're all human, we're all capable of making mistakes, and by training people appropriately on how they should supervise others and how they should uh, uh, talk appropriately to other people eliminates a hostile work environment. Anger is not a place for the workplace. We need to speak to people as human beings. They deserve our respect. They're our most important assets. So by training our managers and supervisors and executives, because oftentimes when we're brought into investigations, it's the CEO and the board of directors has hired us to conduct the investigation because they truly need an arm's-length, independent, competent investigation because the rainmaker has been accused. And so you have to really take a careful approach in how you train people and then continuously retrain them 
so that they do have that voice. Thank you so much again, Steve, for joining us. We really appreciate the time. My pleasure.